morning. All right, we're in the middle of a series called Ecclesia, and if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, we're on part three, I believe. And Ecclesia is a Greek word for church. And so this title, this series, is really about looking back at the first century church to talk about what was the church like, and are we anywhere close to being what the church was supposed to be? You know, I just realized that the word series sounds like Siri, and then it goes off. Okay, let's ignore that. Okay. <laughs> so let me just recap a few things that we talked about in the past few weeks so that you guys know, if you haven't been with us, I'm going to catch you up. The first Sunday we talked about this, that death cannot destroy the church. Uh, Jesus says that not even the case of Hades can take down this ecclesia. And we talked about how in the first century, everything was against the church. And the Roman Empire was trying to shut down the church, and they killed and persecuted a lot of Christians, but we're still around even today, and the Roman Empire is no more. And then the week after that, we talked about, yeah, the church cannot be even destroyed by death, but disunity in the church is its Achilles heel. It is its kryptonite. If the people in the church can't get along, then the church starts to fall apart. And that's why one of the first Christian leaders, his name is Paul, Paul the Apostle, he wrote most of the New Testament. He, and if you read most of his letters that he wrote to churches, it's all about, hey guys, let's make sure this whole unity thing works out because if you guys can't get that right, then the whole church movement falls apart. And so he wrote many, many letters talking about this. And so last week we talked about how we need to learn to basically sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters, and that's how we're going to get along with each other. Today we're going to be talking about something more specific about the church, about the first century church. Now before we get into that, um, I want to share with you a document. Uh, it's, it's the oldest document. It's the oldest document about Christians in existence today outside of the Bible. This document was discovered a few years back and is, is dated to be 130 AD, AD 130. And it's called Epistle to Diagnetus. Uh, Diagne, you can read it for yourself. Okay. And this, this is the, the first century account or second century account of what the Christians were known to be like. This is what it says Christians dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Back in those days, boys, men, they had more value than women. And so if you had a baby and if you had all girls, you're like, I don't want these babies to take up my resources. So if you're a girl, they would probably toss you out into the streets as a newborn. Until, and, and by the way, if you want to know more about church history, you'll find out that it was the Christians who went to the streets and picked up these babies and nurtured these women these, these kids into, into full-grown women knowing the love of Jesus. But this is the reputation that Christians had in, the, in 130 AD. Going on, it says they have a common table, but not a common bed. They invite people into their homes and they can eat together, but they make sure that, that, that they don't all sleep together. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, they, are all, they are in the flesh, meaning they're very human, but they do not live after the flesh. They don't go after their carnal desires. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They live here amongst us, but they live as if they're members of a, or citizens of a different kingdom. Next verse. Uh, next verse. <laughs> next part. They obey the, uh, the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They follow the rules of the society, but not only that, they, do, they go beyond it. That's the reputation they have. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. Next part. They are poor, yet make many rich. 
because they were known to be very generous back then. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. I mean, this is the reputation that Christians had back then. Okay, let's go on. They are evil spoken of, yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. Now, think about the reputation of Christians today, and let's compare it to what Christians were known that early in history. Moving on. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. This was the reputation of Christians early in history. There's nothing in there that describes Christians as being power hungry, how they're trying to make America great again. Or, you know, like there's no mention of how they were trying to gain influence over the culture. They were just being sacrificial, loving on their neighbors, and that's what they're known for. In other words, Christians were supernatural members of their community. I put a hyphen there in the word supernatural because I want to make sure you understand we're not talking about supernatural like they could walk through walls or they could levitate. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this human nature and Christians, like, you know, to take care of yourself, right? Human nature is to make sure you survive. They were able to rise above that. In the very nature, the literal sense of the word, super means above, nature is our nature. They're above nature. They're able to be something more than people expected humans to be. That was the reputation of the Christians back then. Now, what happens when these Christians, about let's just say a dozen, maybe 15, maybe 20 of them come together? What happens, what does it feel like when you walk into a community where there's about a, whole, a dozen of these, maybe a couple dozen of these people together? What did it feel like? So the question I want to address today is this. What did it feel like to be a part of the first century church? Maybe for some of you, this is your first time here. You walked in and you're, you have certain feelings, right? You're like, oh, they play some songs that I heard, never heard of. Or I know that song. Oh, they're pretty modern in their song selection. Oh, they're pretty, you know, or oh, they play that song differently. Or the people here, they greeted me. Or hey, the coffee quality here is good or it's better or it's, maybe it's worse than the church I went to last week. Or, you know, you have these impressions, right? Oh, gosh, that pastor, he's... He talks too fast, <laughs> right? We all have these impressions. And the question is, what did you feel when you walked into a first century church? What, was the, what kind of reputation did the first century church have? And the sad thing is, when we look through the Bible, the New Testament, where the church shows up, the first church shows up in the New Testament from the book of Acts, when you read through the Bible, there aren't that many um, stories of what the first century church looked like. There's a lot of letters in there about what they got wrong. So if you just read the letters of Paul, you would think the church got everything wrong, right? But if you actually take the time to do research outside of the Bible, you'll start to understand what the church was actually like. There's a few verses that give us hints as to what the first church was like. Here's an example from Acts chapter 2. It says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, this might be a shocker to you, but they didn't have church buildings back then. They met in homes. And like I said, the churches back then, at the biggest that we could find archaeologically, the biggest church we could find in the first century was about 30 members. I mean, by their standards, this church today would be a megachurch, <laughs> right? 
right? And so people back then was a very small group of people that met in homes, and they broke bread and ate together, right? And then they shared life together, and they were glad and sincere, meaning they were, they were able to be real with each other. They were authentic. There was, it was an authentic community. And they had the favor of all people, meaning they were able to get along with each other. In other words, the church was a collection of small groups that met in homes. That's what church was back then. The first church building wasn't really talked about in the history until maybe the 300s, if you're wondering. Okay, so I want to share with you, okay, so there's some, a lot of scholars out there who talk about the first century church. There's one that really caught my eye, and I want to read to you something that this person wrote. This person is, his name is Scott McKnight. He's one of the leading New Testament scholars of our day. He's still alive. And um, he got access to some cool documents of Pompeii. If you don't know what Pompeii, where Pompeii is, Pompeii is just a few miles south of Rome in Italy. And uh, there was a big earthquake and a big uh, volcanic eruption there. And it basically destroyed the whole city and it kept everything preserved so people were able to go there and see what the first, first century was like and when they looked in there they found evidence of a church and by looking at the evidence here they were able to reconstruct what the first century f- church felt like and so he wrote a story here and i want to read this to you if you could bear with me and uh if it helps you you could close your eyes because maybe that'll help you understand what the story is uh, what it felt like what it looked like you don't have to, but I, uh, I'm not an excellent reader, but I'm going to do my best to read it to you so that you understand what it felt like to be in the first century church. It starts like this. Imagine, quote-unquote, going to church in the first century. If you were in a major woman city, you'd leave your home and walk in leather sandals or barefoot through the city on paved roads. The pavers on, in your city are large stone blocks, not as smooth or as square as the one we find in our driveways or walkways, and it is hard not to stub your toe or trip. You enter a house church where everyone gathers, and you immediately encounter some church kids playing hide-and-seek. Someone's slave passes you carrying a spit with some already roasted meat dangling on the end. You also see that the household's former shrine to Apollo has been desecrated. You walk through an atrium, where the evening sun gently falls on you, and then a few steps beyond the atrium, you enter into a large room where others are sitting. Some lounge on the floor, while some are on the sofa with pillows. At one end of the room is the elder, who has a small scroll open, and he's chatting with somebody about what it says. Outside the room on the veranda are low tables, and some have already taken their seats for dinner. There are flasks of wine and some pots of water and some trays of food, chicken and fish, and some veggies and some bread. There you sit at a table, eating next to a Roman magistrate whom you met in a legal case some time back, but he doesn't seem to remember you. He passes the piece to you with a handshake and a kiss on the cheek. You also meet a young Jewish man who not only follows the Torah, but believes in Jesus, and you observe that he's eating what he calls kosher. Now, across the room, you observe that a slave, instead of serving others, is sitting next to a Roman citizen. Their different statuses identified by their clothing, and they are praying together with their hands clasped. The conversation is going wonderfully with others around you when the elder stands up and says a prayer to lead the, lead the group into communion or the Eucharist. The elder reads from a letter from the great apostle, that, uh, that, a letter that was sent to them a few years back. And what he reads about in Jesus is Jesus' death and resurrection. You hear about the bread and the body and about the wine and the blood, and then he passes the elements around the room. You snap off some bread, 
eat it, and then take a deep gulp of wine. You pass them to the magistrate next to you, and the table grows silent. Your thoughts wander to what has, uh, what has happened to you since, uh, because of the, what happened to Jesus, dying so that you are now saved from the life of sin. You recall your own liberation as you sit with a dozen other liberated people. The elders speak about the cup and announces God's love and grace and how it is for everyone. The elders make it clear that the Roman way stops at the door and that everyone, men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks, rich and poor, are all one family in Christ. The elder then says that by drinking from that cup, each person is participating in the death of Jesus, who can liberate, the, the, liberate us from the ways of the Roman. And you realize how personal this is to you. He then says that eating the bread means you have just partaken in the body Jesus gave for us, a body that made you all one, whether you are a Jewish or Roman, man or woman, slave or Roman citizen, which you are. As the sun is fading over the Italian countryside, you lose yourself in the rivery as you both listen to the elder teach, and at the same time you think about your son. He's become too far Roman in his ways, and you know the Roman ways lead to slavery to sin and grasping for status and reckless sexual expression. You begin to pray for him as you listen to the elder, and you pray for God's good hand of grace to fall on your family as it has fallen on you. And as you pray, the slave puts his arm on you and prays for you. Then the Roman magistrate joins in. You begin to realize that this table is far more than just a place to eat. It is a place for family. This is what the first century church was like. You walk into a room and you see tables, you see all these different people, you see people of different races, people of different social statuses, people who are slaves, people who are masters. You look around and you realize this place could erupt at any minute. Like, these people shouldn't be getting along. But then you realize everybody is getting along because they're all committed to following Jesus. In the first century church, people were not invited to Sunday services, but to tables. People didn't say, hey, you want to come hear the preacher? They didn't say, hey, the worship song here is awesome. You should come to our church. They said, how would you like to be part of our family? How would you like to be accepted for who you are? How would you like to find out that you are worth, you have worth just because God's image is inside of you? I don't care about your past. God loves you for who you are. How would you like to have a second chance? People walked into these small groups that they called church back then, the ecclesia, and lives were changed. Scott McKnight, in a commentary, he said this, Jews of status sat with Jews of no status. Saints sat with sinners, the former learning that uh, they were the latter and the latter learning they could become the former. Tax collectors sat with zealots, for the table with Jesus was, it was a place of grace. It was a place where you could just come together and sit together and enjoy each other's company and know that you're safe. Why? Because you know that God has accepted you. And so the people of God learns to accept you as well because we are people who have committed ourselves to follow Jesus in his ways. In other words, these small groups, it's a place of belonging. 
you know, six years ago, um, Pastor Lori and I, we got together and we're like talking about what kind of changes can we make to this church? Actually, seven years ago. Seven years ago, we said, hey, what kind of changes can we make to this church? How do we make this church resemble more of the authentic church that we, could fi- that we find in the scriptures? And what we discovered was, you know, when it comes to Sunday mornings, we really can't accomplish the things that we see in the, in the New Testament. When we read the New Testament, we don't see anything there about a worship team, an AV team. We don't see anything there about children's ministry or youth ministry. We don't see anything in there about how, you know, like what kind of sermons we should preach. It doesn't have anything about that in there. But what we do see in there are small groups of people getting together, sharing life with one another, accepting each other, maybe sometimes even fighting with each other, disagreeing with each other, but learning to forgive each other eventually. Like these are the things that we're like, how can we accomplish that on a Sunday morning? And we realized we couldn't do it. And so our solution was we need to pour in and double down on this idea called life groups. We realized that Sunday morning is not really church. Sunday morning is an event. But church really happens in these communities, and in these communities need to be diverse. I mean, sometimes you show up to life group and you're like, I don't understand what these people are going through because we're not in the same age group. We're in different life stages. Well, hello, in the first century, they weren't just in different life stages. They were enemies, right? They were like people who were rich and people who had barely to eat anything to eat. We're talking about people who were at the end of their life and the people who just started their lives. These are all people coming together, finding out they have so much in common because they all decided to follow Jesus. And so my wife thought it would be a good idea to write an account, like the one I just read to you right now, but about my life group. Now, I've changed some details in this story so that you know, we could, I could not reveal too much about what happens in our life group because some of the things are private. Okay. But I want to give you an idea. This is, so, this is an idea, so this is not exactly what happens in our life group, but I want to give you an idea of what has happened, what could happen, and what, what has been going on. It goes like this. I drive, up to, I drive up to my life group's house. As we walk towards the front door, my wife and two kids begin to smell the delicious smell of curry. We ring the ring doorbell, and we hear running footsteps as the youngest child of the house opens the door. As we step inside, we take off our shoes as it is customary in this household. It turns out we are the last ones here. There's eight others who are here on time. <laughs> we greet each other with a few words. The kids run to play with others. Here they learn to share, fight, and forgive. As I look around the room, I see many familiar faces. We all com- com- come from different walks of life. Our generations span from adults who have kids that have already graduated college to young adults who is in grad school and unmarried. The topic of conversation ranges from family problems, work stresses, personal issues, financial challenges, to updates on the relationship with the status of the unmarried young adult. Some are devout Trojans, while I and my family are UCLA grads. Some work in the executive level of a company, while others are teachers, students, or unemployed. As soon as uh, it becomes 6 p.m., all generations gather in one room and we pray. Some of the kids start climbing on our laps as we pray just to annoy us. As we say amen, we take a plate and grab as much food as we can eat. We compliment the host on her amazing cooking and sit down on the, couch, on the couches that are all facing each other. The kids go back to playing. As we glance at everyone with their food, I realize that we are all a bit tired since we all rushed here right after a long day of work or study. Without prompting, we update each other on our week. In our conversations, I bring up a recent challenge I faced and asked what they think of it. 
Where is God in all this? What is the proper way of moving forward? One person corrects me like a parent, while another person assures me that this is normal and that I'm not alone. He shares his story that is very similar to mine, and I feel a little bit of relief. Another person shares about her challenges and how it may be connected to some painful things that came up from her childhood. On Sunday, she looks like she's living the perfect Sunday, a perfect life, but upon hearing about her challenges, I realized that I wasn't the only one that was imperfect. As it turns out, we are all imperfect. As we hear more of the pain she experienced, a sister in our group starts to tear up. We all offer a word of comfort the best we can. We feel safe, and all the labels that keep us in different sectors of society starts to melt away. We forget that the person is married or single, high or low-paying jobs, Bruin or Trojan, in with pop culture or totally oblivious to celebrity uh, news, what kind of car we drive, where we stand politically, that, we be, uh, that they believe what they believe about the disputable matters of our faith, or how much Bible they know. We are all a family, and we can share whatever is on our hearts. Sometimes we may rub each other the wrong way with the unscripted words that we speak, but at the end of the day, we learn to forgive one another and love unconditionally. As we finish eating, someone suggests that we pray for whoever needs prayer. And as we pray, I offer an extremely theologically insightful prayer because that's just who I am. And the next person stays silent because he can't think of the right words to offer to God. The next person prays an extremely emotional prayer. Then another person gives a prophetic word. We are so different from one another, but we wouldn't want it any other way. After a few more seconds of silence, someone says amen. We are all living out the implications of what it means to follow Jesus and we are all experiencing heaven together. We're doing our best to reflect what it means to be a church. But if you think coming on a Sunday morning, sitting in rows, listening to someone talk is what Christianity is all about, then we are gravely mistaken. In the past 2,000 years from the, since the first ecclesia to today, we've made church into something more than it was supposed to, we made it into something less than it was what it was supposed to be church is about relationships. It's about a relationship with one another and a relationship with God. And if you only come to church on Sunday mornings, and that's what you think Christianity is, then we've neglected the more important parts of our faith. So I want to remind you of the verse that we read in the beginning. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I believe that you can only do that in circles where we're facing each other. When we're looking at somebody who doesn't say a word, but by looking at the person's eyes, you know exactly what they're trying to say. And you realize this is something deeper than I ever experienced in my life. And you realize we disagree on a lot of things. I disagree with who you're going to vote for. I'm going to disagree with where you stand theologically in certain issues. I disagree with their lifestyle. I'll disagree with all these things. But at the end of the day, you realize... But in Christ, we are all one, and that we are family. So what's getting in the way of your commitment to love one another? Is there disagreement in theology? What gets in the way of you learning to love somebody in your life group unconditionally? Is it the person's lifestyle? 
what's holding you back from forgiving the person in your life group? Is it because we're too passive? Are you afraid that if you share what you really think that there might be chaos that erupts and that you'll never recover from that? I mean, what is it that's keeping us from being the ecclesia that we're meant to be? It takes time. <laughs> it's going to hurt a lot. You're going to be rubbed the wrong way. But at the end of the day, our goal is unity. Our, our goal is to exhibit the love that Christ has showed us. In John 17, oh, actually early on, John 13, John 12, it talks about the way that people are going to recognize who Christians are is by the way that we love other people. So when people walk into the ecclesia, they look and say, you guys are so different from the world. What's so different about you guys? What, it, what is it about you that makes you different from the world? They look at you like, I can't put my finger on it, but it's different. And you say, it's the way that we love people unconditionally. And they will say, you're right. We don't get to see that much out in the world. But here in this house, I see that love abounds. And that's the prayer that we have for all the people here at Westlight. Amen? Amen.